0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 21 of the Lift Free and Die Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. You'll have to forgive me if my uh, brain is a little muddy. I've been very sick all week, and I'm only now starting to recover from it. But uh, I'm excited because I've been really looking forward to talking to Nick Winkleman for, oh God, quite a while now. And if that name, if you're not overly familiar with that name, but it sounds familiar, I've mentioned it numerous times on previous podcasts, uh, because we're going to talk a lot about his book, The Language of Coaching, which is one of my favorite books of the year. And, uh, you know, I've been following Nick loosely since about 2016, came across him on some podcasts. Um, and those podcasts initially were inspiration for me and my former uh, colleague, Dean, to start our own podcast. And so, getting to interact with people like Nick, this is something I couldn't have really imagined too much, but uh, it's an opportunity to share these conversations with you guys. So, um, please, uh, you know, it's great to have you on uh, welcome, Nick.
1: Oh, Andrew, it's, it, it's, my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's uh, it's always a joy to jump on these podcasts and, uh, use this as a platform to have great conversations and hopefully make others better.
0: Yeah. And you know, I'm really, it's funny. Occasionally I'll get people who reach out and it's very evident that they're very interested in promoting themselves through my podcast. And we have no relationship, but this is why I'm very deliberate in choosing the guests based on people that i think hey this is a you know a selfless person who's doing really great work that more people need to know about. i don't think there's anything wrong with promoting yourself by any means but it feels a lot more authentic when people will just grab you by the shirt collar and say listen you know people you need to see who this person is so a little bit more about you uh you're the head of athletic i'm gonna read this off because brain again mushy uh head of athletic performance and science at irish rugby football union And uh, you're the former director of Education Exos, which is a pretty big deal, big educational organization. And uh, and of course, as I mentioned, you know, the author of that book. So the book really goes into a lot of deep research on the application of external versus internal cues and more broadly, a lot of the language of coaching uh, and how external are almost always superior. Um, We've all we've all. Intuitively figured out some great external cues, but I wanted you to answer why are we so reluctant to let go of a lot of our historical cues, a lot of the internal language we're used to, um, d- despite the evidence.
1: Yeah, no. Th- thank you for the for the question, and it, it, it's one that we could give you know hours upon hours of consideration to. So I'll I'll try to open with a, a, a brief answer that you can then. Pick and choose where you want to take the story next. So let, let's let's start by just defining, in case your audience is unfamiliar with these terms, what we mean by by internal versus external cueing. And so, it doesn't matter what your, so to speak, portion of the movement profession is, whether you're a physio, a strength coach, sport coach, right, or just a, an athlete yourself trying to figure out how to be better. You know. Ultimately, the one thing that we all know is is always present that if you're a movement professional, you're communicating movement, right? You have to somehow get these insight off the paper and into the person. And while we use communication for a lot of different things, right, we open up a session and and tell the athlete, hey, here's what's going to happen today. Here's the expectations, you know, the what, why, and the how of the session. We also know that we might have chats psychologically around effort and motivation and attitude but we also know we have a lot of conversations around movement in particular. And so when we look at our conversations around movement in particular, we will we'll give a number of pieces of information. We might describe a movement. Hey, we're going to do a squat. Here's how to set it up. Here's what it looks like. Uh, we might give a demonstration to give something visual. But almost inevitably, we, we get down to what we call the coaching cue. And the coaching cue tends to be like the address in the GPS, Right? It's, it's the one idea, the one guiding light that's meant to help them move better. And depending on who you ask, some people say, oh, you can give two to three. I'm in the class where I think you should only give one. But when you give that one coaching cue, ultimately, uh, the question is, what is the content of that coaching cue, which, which means literally, what are the words we are using, we are selecting to guide how they move? And when you start to drill into that, you can think of our coaching language for our cues, living on a continuum of, of internal language to external language. And we can think of this continuum like the zoom lens on a camera. And so when we are giving internal cues, we are, we are zooming into the body and we are asking the athlete to think about their body while they move their body. And so these cues are around joint motion, motion, around muscle action or or limb motion. So if I was teaching someone to jump, I might say, squeeze your glutes. I might say, extend your hips. I might say, explode through your legs. These are all categorically what we call internal cues. And so they share the commonality of being body centric. You're asking the person to think about the body while the body's moving. We also then have a class of cue, right? if we zoom out of the body, out of the body being the key here that we call external cues. And external cues are defined by asking someone to focus on a feature of the environment or the outcome that they're trying to achieve. So in that exact same example, instead of saying extend the hips, squeeze the glutes, or explode through your legs, I could say push the ground away or explode off the ground or drive to the ceiling, assuming I was indoors. And what these external cues do is they they operate off the following assumption. They say, well, hold on. The, The person doing the moving, right? I am the mover. I am the coordination, right? It's not like I have this bird's eye remote control controlling my body like a video game. No, I am my coordination. And so I want people to think about that. Let those words rattle in your head. I am my coordination. I am the one who is moving, And so in recognizing that, the second I give the body a task, it has no option but to move in terms of that task. And so if I tell you to explode off the ground, it is implied that my legs will be part of that solution. Notably, my legs will have to extend explosively if I am to explode off the ground. We'll we'll come back to later on why that, that, that point is so important. So external cues then understand that the body moves to achieve an outcome. And all it is trying to do is make that outcome stand out, very salient, as we might say. So explode off the ground or jump as high as you can. And so these are categorically external because they don't require the person to think about the body while they are moving their body. And so if we take that, there is now 22 years of research, 22 years of research on this domain, whereby they have looked at Categorical internal cues versus external cues and learning how to move. And we easily have 250 papers on this across the 22 years. And what we find is these papers span simple things like balance and throwing beanbags to complex things like golf, tennis, sprinting, jumping, swimming, change of direction, Olympic lifting, strength training, young, old, males, females, everything in between, novices to elite. This is one of the most well-researched areas, full stop, within the movement domain. And what we find, by my estimates, is there's easily 90% agreement in the findings. And that agreement, Andrew, is what you referenced. And that is that external cues tend to not only promote better performance in the moment, which means if we give an external cue versus an internal queuing equivalent, the external cue pushed the ground away, results in a higher jump then extend the hips. But here's the kicker. We know that when you are coached using external cues, it tends to result in better long-term learning, which means the results that come from the coaching are owned by the athlete. It doesn't require additional reminders and feedback. And so the coaching, if you would, is sticky. And so once you understand categorically internal versus external, you'll be able to recognize, oh, I use cues, across both of these categories but then when you look at the evidence and interrogate your intuition you quickly find that external cues and as we can talk about analogies promote better performance and learning it's not that you don't get better with internal cues you do because there's still the physical act of doing something that drives learning it's simply that if you were to select what should be guiding and accelerating that learning process external cues do it far better and, and I'm happy to, uh, if we want now or in a future question, expand on the next question that the listeners are going to have. Well, hold on, Nick. Are you saying that you never use internal language? No, you do use internal language, just not in your cues. It's not the idea that you want in their head while they're moving, and we can get into why that is.
0: And that was exactly the next uh, you know, line of questioning, because when we are setting up and describing an exercise, there will be a lot of internal language. Another sort of quick analogy that I've always liked that may bring this really to the forefront of people's brains. I would imagine every trainer has intuitively figured out that in order to get someone to really brace their abs better, you I've done this all the time. I've got them to imagine that they're stopping a punch or stopping bullets with yes. their abs. And every client has always been able, especially the ones who don't have that body awareness, who couldn't, they didn't have a fucking clue what bracing their abs even feels like. But when you tell them, stop this punch they intuitively know how to do it
1: yep 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 and and that's that is categorically an analogy where it's it's a a it's a it's like the matrix right whatever i can visualize my body can move as if and so if i move as if i was going to take a punch in the gut i can bring that into reality and thus it allows me to stiffen up and the difference is if i tell you to brace your abs it requires that you have the body awareness and the knowledge to know what bracing the abs are but that's to assume that we need to have that knowledge to brace our abs you give a clear example that we don't need to have that body knowledge you tell anyone imagine you're about to take a punch intuitively implicitly without thinking in terms of step by step a person can do it and so we have we have mi- we have a misplaced belief that the athlete or the client needs to understand and be aware of the intricacies of their body movement to move their body. And the simple fact of the matter is that is not true. How else would a baby learn to move if they needed to have categorical knowledge on how to move their body, for which they do not, yet they move remarkably well in their own developmental time. And so there are nearly, in my mind, infinite examples that will constantly, just by looking into your intuition, Show us why external language is natural, why it naturally promotes better performance and learning. It gets out of the way of the mind. It gets out of the way of the body. We are not built to try to control our movements step by step, which is fundamentally what internal cueing suggests by asking you to think about your body while you are moving that same body.
0: If anything, I think we've all had that experience where we tried to overthink what we were doing. I know I had an experience like that fairly recently during an in-person seminar, and it just completely threw me off to the point where I couldn't um, do this unique movement. So imagine how frustrated a client can be if they're over-queued, which you referred to earlier about trying to your preferences for just a single queue. But imagine how frustrated a client is who... You know, doesn't know how to move certain parts of the body through internal language they're overwhelmed by it and now they're starting to get frustrated and we have a coach who through inexperience or just being married to this belief system that this overuse of internal language is the answer maybe because they've observed it work in places uh, what are your thoughts on getting those yep. Coaches yep. off of that type of thinking
1: well let's let's first brighten a point that you already made andrew and that's that when i talk about coaching language my my objective is not to hit delete on your cognitive keyboard okay the reality is all language has a place when it comes to the coaching arena it's about ultimately understanding you know when to use certain types of language to optimize understanding and create a better experience, a better learning experience for the athlete. And so we, we've thrown around a couple terms that exist within a model that I outline in my book, which is worth noting here, and that will then lend itself to answering your question on how to, so to speak, you wean yourself off too much internal cueing. And so the model is called... The, the coaching communication loop. And it's exactly what it sounds. It's the language we use before, during, and after a movement in such that it loops around the movements that we teach. And the, the coaching communication loop is, the acronym is DDC- DDD. And so the first D says, we describe a movement, if we're teaching it for the first time, obviously. Then we demonstrate it or give them some kind of visual reference. Then we cue it. Then they do it. And then we debrief it. And so when we look at this, I think it doesn't take much interrogation of your own experience. We will naturally do this. The description provides the overview. Here's what the movement is. Here's how you do it safely. And here's some maybe psychological reinforcement to give them the motivation to know you can do it. Then you see it. We know that visually our proprioception and our visual system interact. So that's why I can watch someone move and get a proprioceptive lived sense of how to embody that, how to bring that forth in my own movement, which is why visuals are so powerful. I then give them the cue. I want to use this analogy again. The cue is like the address in the GPS. You're giving them that one mental movement destination, that one focus that's meant to help them move better. And this is why if we think of it as a movement destination, by its very nature, it has to be external because I always move in terms of an environment. We don't move in space. We don't move in a vacuum. We are always embedded in an environment. And the second we go from external cueing to internal cueing, we sever the connection with the world we move in. And the second we do that, learning suffers as a byproduct. Okay? And I'm going to get back to that in a second. Then they do it. They perform the movement. Just a little footnote on that. Should you be communicating while they're performing a movement? Well, if you're doing like an RDL and it's really slow, I can say things like stay long as they go down, but I'm using simple language that usually has to do with tempo and control. And I'm only using it if the movement is slow enough to warrant it. I might also, if it's a faster movement, like a sprint, push, push, push on the first three steps. But again, it follows my rules. It's rhythm-based. If your cueing is not simple rhythm-based, you should not be talking while they move. Ultimately, you become a distractor in your, desire to make an improvement okay so coaching while they move is more for you than them unless it's rhythm and then the debrief the debrief is where i'm trying to ascertain what happened i saw what happened but what did they experience with the goal being that we figure out the next best cue right was the address in the gps correct do i need to update it refine it retire it so on and so forth what this comes down to is what you said andrew when i am describing a movement And when I am debriefing it, we are pivoting. And I want to explain this because it is central philosophically to life, but certainly to coaching. When I'm describing and debriefing a movement, I am entertaining the knowledge of what, meaning the knowledge of what to do. I am literally using words to describe a movement, right? A cognitive picture is being painted. What we have to recognize is me describing and talking about a movement with internal language technical language biomechanical language where i'm trying to explain what is going on or what is going wrong or what is going right this is operating at the level of of propositional knowledge right things that i can put into words but movement is far more complex far more complex than what we can put into words. And let me just illustrate it with one statement every athlete has said to the coach. Coach, I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. I guarantee you can take 100 athletes, put videos on the screen, and have them pick out what's right or what's wrong. But does that one-to-one transfer in their ability to do it, assuming they have the physical ability to do it? No, it does not. And so that means that there is something, there, there, there is something that needs to be different in our use of language to help the athlete access how to move effectively. And what that is, is pivoting from internal language about what the movement is, describing it, to external language around how to perform it. Really, how to focus, such that the movement naturally arises.
0: Really and
1: so true. to the original question. Oh, sure, you got it. to To the original question here, Andrew, then, then, then I want, obviously I want you to, to make your point. When we look then at our own coaching, when we look then at our own coaching, what I encourage coaches to do as a step one is to start to reorganize their use of language, leaving their internal technical jargon in the descriptions and in the debriefs and trying to synthesize out the next best external cue or analogy that rides along in the mind such that all language has a, has a role. They all have a house on the street that is coaching communication. But it's about organizing your language so things are said at the right time, right, to get the best outcome.
0: What I was going to grab onto just briefly there, and I thought it—I believe I'm on the right track with this—is when you get athletes not being able to describe what they're doing, but intuitively knowing what they're doing. That sounds a lot like when your gym bro friend takes their friend to the gym, shows them a bunch of stuff, but they, they don't know how to coach, they don't know how to use the language, or. I mean, in your world, how often do we see players who were given an opportunity to be coaches who, well, let's put it mildly, they just were really ineffective because it was such a natural thing for them. When I mean, Maybe they were easily coached, but they didn't understand how to use language intuitively in order to recreate their own skill in other players. 100%.
1: 100%. And so we have... We have two examples, right? We have, we have coaches who are very bad athletes and as a byproduct had to develop their, their understanding of the sport intellectually, propositionally. They needed to be able to describe it and articulate it. And oftentimes they can be very good coaches, especially when they know how to use language appropriately. But then you're 100% right. You have the athlete that has no propositional knowledge around their sport, but they can just do it. And and thus they can demonstrate it. And so their knowledge of how is remarkably high, but their knowledge of what is remarkably low. And for them, if they don't learn how to articulate themselves, demonstration can only take us so far. So I think we have have two different examples there of athletes turned coach. And what we recognize is ultimately a coach needs both. A coach needs knowledge of what to be able to articulate what's going to happen But they also need knowledge of how they need to know how to articulate that same thing goes for the athlete but really they only need one of them they don't need to take a written test on their movement they need to be able just to move correctly and so too often we coach our athletes as if they're taking written tests alongside physical tests and so it's not to say that we don't want to increase their knowledge and my good friend dan paff says he wants his athletes to have a phd in their movement i completely agree but i only want you to have a phd in your movement to the degree that your cognitive knowledge doesn't disrupt your physical knowledge because it's the physical knowledge that we are ultimately chasing here. And so external cues operate like this. Hey, listen, you know how to move your body, but your body always moves in terms of something, right? And that in terms of something is an environment. Could be the ground, could be a barbell, could be the opponent, could be the teammate, right? Could be an implement, but we're always moving in terms of something. And so what external cueing says is, if I can set the right intention, if I can have you focus on the right thing at the right time, your body will be able to deliver its physical message in terms of that outcome. The problem is, when I give you internal language, I can only focus on one part of my body at a time. Like for the listeners, like right now, seriously, I want you to try to visualize and imagine right? What your hand and your, your right hand and your left foot feel like at the same time. I, I Meditate on this. You cannot do it. You can go from hand to foot, but you cannot be in your hand from a perceptual awareness perspective and your foot at the same time. Cannot happen. And this is a feature of the limitations of our attentional capacity. Our attention, our conscious spotlight can only exist and be pointed consciously at one thing at a time. And so the work by Sean Gallagher on on body image, which is to say the image in the sense of my body, I can tour my body. I can go from my pinky toe right to, to my ring finger, no problem. But I can only be in my pinky toe or my ring finger. I cannot be in both simultaneously. So people are listening, well, why the hell does that matter? Here's why it matters. When you're teaching someone how to sprint and you're asking them to focus on just their ankle, just their knee, just their hip. You're asking them to try to organize a multi-joint movement around a single joint. It is physically impossible to do that. So by giving someone an internal cue, you actually overload their attention because they have to simultaneously flip between the internal cue that they're trying to commit to because you're their coach and they believe in you and the organization and execution of the whole movement. And you want to know what's really cool about this? We know that this is likely the case because reaction times are slower when coaches give internal cues than when you give external cues. And that's because the attentional system is overloaded, and thus it doesn't pick up on the trigger to go as fast. Whereas external cues are on the environment I'm moving and interacting with, and thus it gives easy access in the case of responding to a gun going off in a start.
0: One thing that's probably worth mentioning too is if a lot of personal trainers listen to this and while many will work with athletic populations, many work with everyday general population. And I wanted you to as well, you you know, use this sort of explanation to say, well, how does this apply to general population, which as far as I'm concerned, it's it's the same thing. But in in some of these examples, the difference in like, you know, the, the research on reaction time, or whatever. Yeah, sure, that definitely makes a bigger difference when it comes to a track and field athlete versus grandma that you're training, but you know, still getting grandma to learn how to move properly, she's still gonna benefit from external cueing language.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah the, 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 the human condition, the way we control and learn to control movement, it doesn't matter if you're an elite athlete or grandma Jenny, the same rules apply. And sharing the reaction time example is less because we're talking about reaction time right, being important for general population, but more to demonstrate that you have concrete evidence that internal language basically creates more cognitive pollution, Andrew. That's what it comes down to. By the very fact that you're asking them to isolate out a micro feature of the movement, it dissolves and distracts them from the macro execution of that movement and so ultimately you're giving them mental baggage that weighs them down that does not help them and you're confusing and i don't mean this to be belittling but you are literally confusing knowledge of what with knowledge of how you are assuming that cognitive propositional knowledge right that we can put into words about a movement translates to performing that movement if that was the case The best coaches in the world would be the best movers, Andrew, because they have the most knowledge about the movement. But you and I both know that is not the case. And so it's about using language that connects people to the environment they're moving in. And and I just want to zoom into how this works because people might be thinking, well, how do I get the detailed technical changes I want? And so let me stick with my running example because I think it's a movement we can all visualize and relate to in some capacity, but we could do this with any movement. So we have someone sprinting. And let's say I have two different individuals. Individual A is not bringing their leg forward enough, right? So biomechanically, I might say to them, you're not getting hip flexion or you're not getting enough ang- ankle dorsiflexion, flexion or your spine isn't getting straight enough, right? These are the kind of internal cues used to give. I would just tell them what is wrong biomechanically and assume they knew how to fix that. Athlete B then, let's say they're the opposite. They are, are struggling to get enough extension. They're not pushing the ground away enough. In reality, these two things interact, but just for the purpose of the example, we can kind of put those two pictures in our mind. So athlete A isn't getting enough hip flexion. Athlete B isn't getting enough extension. So two different biomechanically describable problems. Now the reality is these things need to happen simultaneously. Both are involved in sprinting fast. So how, here's the question, how do I emphasize one part of the technique without distracting them from the whole technique working together? That's the challenge in front of us. And so the way we do this is like a Trojan horse. We hide the technical information in the external cue, by a matter of emphasizing a certain part of the environment that by its emphasis is going to put a greater natural demand on the part of the technique that we feel needs improvement okay how the heck do we do that well here we go if i have the person who lacks the hip extension the same thing could be for a jump or any plyometric okay i need to put their focus in the rear view mirror right? I need to put their focus on what is happening behind them, but in a way that doesn't take away from the whole technique, i.e. what's happening in front of them. So how do I do that? Well, I can then use cues that anchor them to the ground. And I anchor them to the ground because the ground requires the movement action of extension. And that is the movement action I'm looking to improve. And so I can say things like push the ground away, or even more specifically, push the ground back, or I can say explode away from the ground. And all of these phrases, especially if I'm only giving one cue at a time, highlight that to run fast, it requires me to push aggressively into the ground. And so that aggressively into the ground, one-to-one supports a faster sprint, but does through, through emphasizing the push. And so I hide the micro in the macro. Now, how do I do that? That's athlete B. How do I do that for athlete A? Well, in the case of athlete A, it's a bit more difficult. I don't have any ground. My my forward leg is just free floating in space. So people might be thinking, what do I anchor that to? How how can I not say hip flexion or drive your knee forward? Well, this is where, enter analogy. Just as you said, imagine someone's going to punch you in the gut. They can move as if. We can take the virtual properties of our imagination and we can bring in an environmental feature that theoretically that front leg could interact with. So I can say, drive your knee forward as if you were shattering a pane of glass or, and I do this, bring out a sparring mitt, drive your knee forward as if to smash through a sparring mitt or say, I want you to imagine you're running up a steep set of stairs. What would your leg have to do your front leg to get up those stairs? And they'll demonstrate a good high hip flexion and knee lift. And so see what I've done here is I transpose the environment where it does not exist. And guess what? That allows me to bypass the use of internal language. And by the same factor of putting my vision in the rear view mirror and pushing the ground away, gets better extension, which requires better front side. Equally, I can put their attention forward and to move as if you were driving through a pane of glass. Again, that's going to emphasize front side, but still is going to complement a better push because the push reactively works with the knee going forward. And so I keep the whole movement in frame, but I simply give you an angle, a lens to look at that movement that emphasizes the technical feature. And I bring all this out through my 3D external cueing model.
0: That's fantastic. I just was soaking it all up as you went. One of the things I did note about the book that I, I wanted to make sure uh, we mentioned was, you know, anyone who goes to read it, which I recommend to, to again anyone, is the earliest part does get pretty heavy into a lot of neuroscience and a lot of technical detail. It can be a heavy read for a book that is literally called The Language of Coaching, but it's also really important information to understand to then get to the concepts that I find that you explain really well. So you give me any thoughts, on some of the heavier stuff that has to go into this process for a coach to understand it to then apply it to clients?
1: Yeah, so, you know, in terms of, of navigating the book, you know, I, I took the approach, you know, and, and ultimately the, the readers will, will decide how successful I was, of making things a, as simple as possible and no simpler. I think part of the challenge with the book itself is The book is trying to give a grammar, trying to give a vocabulary to coaching language. And so for many people, they're they're not only learning new concepts, they're learning how to apply those new concepts, which always creates an impression of, of something that can be a bit more demanding. And so the book ultimately, part one, you're right, it's the science. It's the science of basically learning, memory, and attention. What I try to do with those three sections, and and Andrew, I I welcome your commentary here, is I don't shy away from giving people the core science of how memory works, the core science of of how learning works, and the core science of how attention works, because these are ultimately the three interacting ingredients that we manipulate all the time. We get people to pay attention so that they remember and and express that remembrance through learning uh, in, in the way they move, right? So these are the three core elements, if you would, of of movement coaching, what I try to do is anytime we get into the detail there, Andrew, I also try to use story, narrative and analogy that we get you deep. You feel like you need to go up for air and I bring you up for air. And so it's it's a way that I, I wrote it by design. I didn't want to shy away from the detail. I want to upgrade the overall intellectual operating system of our coaching knowledge in the industry, but I tried to do it in in such a way where I actually use the principles that the book is about. I bring you face-to-face with the concept in its pure form, but then we use analogy and story to color it, to make it relatable, to make it applicable to your environment. The cool thing about the book is if you're thinking, well, Nick, I'm not overly interested in the science of attention, memory and learning, I want to get those things, but without having to know the atomic structure, right? Not everyone wants to know about quantum physics, yet they're still able to sit on a chair and know how to do it. So the cool thing is, everybody can start in part two of the book. And part two of the book, again, you can tell me what you think, Andrew, that's where the language, so to speak, is lighter because the topics become more relatable and lighter. They're more familiar, right? It's how we use language to coach movement. And from part two and three, You could take an absolute coaching newbie who's never coached a day in their life. They could start in part two and and hand on heart, I do believe they could digest it, read it, understand it, and be a better coach for it. Part one is really, let's say, for the extremists who want to go deep. I I know a lot of people that have started on part two and part three of the book, and then inevitably that whets their appetite. They want to know more. Then they go back and read part one. And that's a perfect way to navigate the book.
0: And I think there's a certain type of trainer who... Almost likes diving into the research base, the heavy stuff, uh, you know, like, like reading Brad Schoenfeld's type of book. Type of book and yeah, yeah. thoroughly turn around and not, not all these coaches do this, but don't always intuitively know how to communicate with an end general population client without overwhelming them with stuff that, you know, they don't necessarily need to know. So I think this book actually bridges that gap really well. For, those people be- I
1: didn't actually I tried. yeah you know what I tried to do is it's people don't call it a textbook because it's not a textbook but people also know it, it's it's not a a general light read I wanted it to actually be both I wanted to do exactly what you said I wanted the, the book to be a bridging book where I I, I gave you unapologetically the technical items verbalized as, as technical as needs be to be honest about it but no you know, no more than that But then give you the examples, the simple language, the relatable language, the client facing language you would use to both understand and communicate it. And this is why, as you know, in part three of the book, you know, we tried to do some pretty cool things. One is there's an entire chapter on behavior change, not client behavior change, but coach behavior change such that there literally is a roadmap that guides you step by step on how to embody these principles. You know, proverbially speaking, how do you download this coaching app so you update your coaching OS, your coaching operating system? And so there's an entire chapter, and that's one very unique part of the book. The other thing is the last three chapters cover 27 of the most common movements providing queuing grids. You know, we, we cover hundreds of cues in the book. So even for the person that just jumps to chapter nine and wants to learn how to queue a vertical jump, you know what? The book was written so you can go right there, get those external cues, use them. So many options. And even if you don't know why it works, it's still working. And so I'll say it again. The book is designed to be accessed at any and every level of ability and interest.
0: You uh, you then went into what I was also going to ask about is, you know, we're going to see some people in hearing this. We're going to be reluctant to even accept this because you know a lot of their internal language is going to be fairly entrenched and like you said earlier and i'll reiterate it doesn't mean that we can't use any internal language at all it's just about for the exclusive action of giving a cue then we want to favor external language so any additional thoughts on you know trying to deal with the pushback that some coaches may have from well i've been doing this for Fifteen or twenty years, and you know I've been doing a great job with my people, and you know I, I don't, you know I don't believe this research, you know any any of those ideas.
1: Yeah, so yeah, quite quite a few, but let me just give a couple high level ones. The first one is, you know, the old statement. I remember I, I don't know if it was, it was Stu McMillan or not Stu McMillan, um, Stuart McGill, who said something to the effect: if, if it wasn't him, it was someone along those same lines in the back research. You know, I didn't know my back felt bad until it felt good. And so this is kind of like that. You know, you don't know how good something is until you experience that new norm. And, and so I think I would just challenge every coach to recognize that there, there is a realm, there is a possibility that as good as they think their, their coaching and the impact of their coaching is, especially if they're using a lot of internal cues, that it could be better. And they won't know that until it is. And so this is at least a pathway for them to test run. The other thing is to recognize, I said it earlier in passing, but let me say it again. Cueing is only one aspect of the, the, the engine that is movement learning, okay? At the end of the day, if we are moving, if we are performing a movement action, we will continue to get better at it. How we focus, how we focus ultimately acts as a, as a dial where I can dial up my learning or I can dial it down. And so learning will occur no matter what you are focusing on. But to the degree to which you want to optimize that learning and optimize, I'd argue, the experience, like the actual joy that goes along with learning, that's where internal versus external becomes absolutely critical. If you're someone that doesn't care about optimizing movement, then this simply might not be the topic for you. Now, if you do want to optimize how someone moves, then it, it also comes down to, okay, I still recognize the point. If I'm someone who's been coaching using internal language my whole life, likely I've used a mix, but let's say I'm biased towards internal. And to be honest with you, we know that the research in physiotherapy as well as strength conditioning shows that we are biased to that. You know, typically the split is anywhere between 70 and 30, 60, 40 in favor of using internal cues to external what I encourage people to do is use the sandwich approach. Give them the internal cue. Hey, I need you to get better hip extension on that next sprint. Okay, that's the knowledge of what to do. How am I going to do that, coach? Now, to do that, I want you to focus on exploding off the ground or explosively pushing the ground away. Or I'm going to stand behind you, right? Imagine I'm about to chase you. Get away from the chase. You know, uh, imagine there's a rattlesnake right about to bite your ankle. Beat the bite. So you see what I've done there? I've given them the knowledge of what? I've given them, an, if you would, the, the intellectual curiosity piece. And let's be honest, not every client and trainer or client and athlete has that curiosity. But sometimes I just want to be very clear. So, hey, better extension. But now I've given them a mechanism to know how to do it. I would challenge any and every trainer and coach to tell me how embedded in the words extend your hip is the knowledge of how to do that. It, it doesn't exist. It is not there. And if you can find it and describe it to me, I want to know. But if I tell you to explode and push the ground away, right? I'm giving you a verb. I'm giving you an action, something that you can fundamentally achieve. And in achieving it requires, demands the body's hip extension. And so they both can coexist. But the order of operations matters, okay? We want that external cue. That's the address in the GPS. That synchronizes me with the environment. And if you find yourself being frustrated that you can't come up with external cues, that is not a defense for using internal language. That is simply a defense that you need to upgrade your coaching operating system, which is why over a decade of thought went into the book that is now the language of coaching. That is my effort to our industry at large to give us the systems to mechanize better coaching. What I like to call luckless coaching. Get out from trial and error, just being chance. Let's get into choice. Let's understand what we're doing, why we're doing it and have a systematic dependable proven way to get to the words that work. That's what I'm trying to offer with the language of
0: coaching. And you mentioned hip extension. I think any trainer who's worked with general population, because athletes often tend to be a bit more body wear, but you know, Especially with men. Women seem to intuitively move with hip extension, hip flexion a little better. But how many men have we all worked with who? Um, I have a physiotherapist friend. He literally calls them motor morons in not a d- demeaning sort of way. It's just the, it is yeah. a pattern that some humans simply have no intuition for, right? They want to flex extend at their lumbar. And I've had experience with using either analogies or external cueing language that has often conquered it. Sometimes it's it's as sometimes it's as silly as uh, you know anyone who knows what the bend and snap. I've taught a Romanian deadlift to someone who didn't have a clue how to move that way by using the analogy the bend and snap, and I believe that's legally blonde, right? And. There was something that I tried with a client after reading your book, and, and people listening here think this sounds ridiculous, but it worked. And a lady who just didn't intuitively move at her hips well. And I actually got her to imagine that yep. we had a saucer with a cup of tea on it between her shoulder blades, and that she had to push her hips yep. back. And you can create an external cue. And you don't want to, I guess, make it too complicated, but one of the great ones is closing a, a car door where your hands are full, right? But this cue yeah, yeah. letting her not tip over. This saucer with T in it was what it took to teach her to pin her shoulder blades back and maintain a neutral spine while doing a hip hinge.
1: But here's the cool thing, Andrew. People might forget everything we've talked about, but they're probably gonna remember your punch in the gut cue. They're probably gonna remember your your saucer, you know, TQ, because these things are 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 just the 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 gravitational pull of those visuals are such that it is unavoidably imprinted the second we hear it, and I guarantee there's people even listening to that who have stood up and and, and try, oh yeah, I can see how with the with the water I would have had to control this that has to go down flat, totally. And what it does in just such brilliance, almost almost there's an aesthetic quality like seeing art with analogy, that it hides all the technical nuance, because here's why it articulates the action not the anatomy think about that that's the difference between external and internal external is about actions internal is about anatomy at the end of the day that's like trying to teach someone to drive a car by explaining the the wheel or the brake pads like i'm not trying to be demeaning because i know people value internal language i value internal language But I also understand that, yes, to be a mechanic, I understand my car. But to be a driving coach, I use a different set of skills. Guess what, my friends? We are mechanics and driving coaches. Do not confuse the language we use when we're in mechanic mode with the language we need to use when we're in driving mode. Your your descriptions in your debriefs, be as technical as you feel is required to get explanation, understanding, knowledge, and buy-in. But when it comes to teaching them how to move, dabble in action, external cues and analogies not anatomy.
0: Amazing. I've, I've loved this episode. Uh, it was great to be able to talk deeper on top of having read the book. I know you got a hard stop shortly, so I wanted to make sure people knew, A, where they can get your book, B, uh, where they can find you on social media.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, so The Language of Coaching, The Art and Science of Teaching Movement is the full name. It's on Amazon worldwide, as well as uh, Human Kinetics and, and most of the other uh, vendors would say Amazon is probably the best. And, and for those that want more of the up-to-date stream of consciousness, it's at Nick Winkleman on Twitter and Instagram. And as I think you probably know, Andrew, I have a ton of free open source uh, courses on these topics that can be accessed at the language of Yeah. No, um,
0: you've, you've crept into my world as more and more of an important resource. And it's why it was so important to make sure that you were on the radar of a lot more people. And uh, no, I'm excited to see uh, where your work will continue. And let's just put it this way. If there's a book in the future, uh, I'll be buying it very quickly as well. So uh, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. I know we had a a little trouble making this work, but uh, thankfully it did. And uh, I appreciate your time. Um, And thanks to all listeners for continually tuning into this every week. I really appreciate it. Uh, If you haven't given my podcast a review, uh, that would be (laughs) unbelievable right now. And, uh, you know, share it with someone that you feel like, especially this episode, if you've got a coach friend who you think would really benefit from this, you know, I'd love it if we'd have that kind of support from you. And, uh, and again, I can't say thank you enough. Um, Stay tuned for next week.